Welcome to the Sports Ethics Show. The Sports Ethics Show discusses the many ethical and philosophical issues that arise in and around sport. I am Sean Klein, the Sports Ethicist. You can read the Sports Ethicist blog at sportsethicist.com, where you can also download podcasts of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, or find links to related information. The Sports Ethicist is also on Facebook and on Twitter at Sports Ethicist. You can email the show, sportsethicist at gmail.com. This podcast is a recording of the interviews with the participants in the fourth annual Rockford University Sport Studies Symposium. So it was recorded on April 24th, 2015, following the symposium on the campus of Rockford University. The theme of the conference was sports studies, the state of the art, and so we had six scholars come in and talk to us about various aspects of sports studies. What is it? How does it relate to other disciplines? And so the podcast consists of first uh, my colleague and, and I, Mike Perry, sitting down with the first panel, uh, talking about the nature of sports studies itself, and then a conversation with the second panel, which looked at some of the interdisciplinary issues in sports uh, studies. So I'm sitting here with uh, the first panel from today's Sport Studies Symposium. Matt Adamson is a PhD MD student in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health at, and also at the College of Medicine at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Stephen Mosher is a professor, professor of Sport Management and Media in the School of Health Sciences and Human Performance at Ithaca College. Dr. Cynthia, Cynthia, Dr. Cynthia Sindor earned her PhD in her interdisciplinary humanities at, the Pen at Pennsylvania State University, uh, and she is now an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, so uh, what we're going to do is, is just have a conversation about uh, uh, some of the topics that were in the, in the first panel uh, that focused on uh, sports studies really as sports studies, sports studies qua sports studies, to really get, go to my Aristotelian roots. Uh, and so, Matt, uh, you know, you spoke uh, about how sports studies maybe could be a bridge between place studies and science study, and in particular, you focused on the common dichotomy of work and, and play, and your talk looked to, to challenge that. Uh, and uh, I, thought, I thought that was very interesting, and, and I thought maybe you could also say a little bit about what, what the goal is in terms of pushing on that dichotomy and why we should, why we should think about pushing on it. Sure. Yeah, so... Um Essentially, the idea behind um, sort of trying to problematize the workplace dichotomy is just that, you know, the way we the way we look at things, if we're looking at them in terms of this dichotomy, it sort of precludes us from seeing what we're looking at in certain ways. So if we're looking at something as work, we won't see it in terms of play, and thus there are certain aspects of that thing that we're looking at that we just won't see. And so I think like play studies, sports studies, I think it gives us a really um, sort of interesting lens where we are really invested in play as and sport in sort of this play sense but also in this broader significance where these things can do some sort of like social cultural work mm -hmm. and so um, the idea then being that if we can start to break down some of these barriers between these terms and ideas that we're thinking about that we might be able to make um, connections that we're not able to make at this point or maybe be able to argue more strongly for the significance of things like sport mm -hmm. and play in the broader you know social world so a quick follow-up then uh, is do you have a concrete example of an insight that we might miss if we don't if, because we're trapped in this in this dichotomy is there some insight that that 
that we would miss, that this is going to show us and, yeah. and be more concrete about it. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah so I think, um, you know, in, in the talk I brought up the example of um, Bo Lotto, who was a scientist, he studies perception, he tried to get at this idea of can children um, do science, right? So he's operating from this assumption that science is a lot like play. They share a lot of the same characteristics. So in doing that, he really uh, illuminated some um, some of the aspects of science as play that um, you know relate more broadly to broader critiques of science. So mm-hmm. critiques dealing with science in terms of trying to make science more open, trying to make it more diverse, um, more reflexive and critical about its own processes and, and the, the knowledge production that goes on there. And he talked about how um, trying to look at science as play helps us to structure it in a way where we are more aware of the process. We're more aware of the process of learning. He termed it as seeing ourselves see. That when we do it in this way, we can see the way we see things. We can see the process of learning and the process of producing knowledge. So um, it's just a small example, but basically that example I think illustrates how um, breaking down this distinction where science isn't only work, it's also play, can help us to do the scientific work in ways that might be more uh, open, more um, you know, explorative and less exploitative, more um, these things that, that have been really broad critiques of science for, for a while now. So a question that, that just popped in my head as you're talking, sure. uh, and, and as the host, I'll take my prerogative, yeah. <laughs> uh, is it particularly in the, in the lotto example, is there any discussion or, or inter- connections to Montessori? Because it, it, there's a kind of Montessorian sort of element there of allowing... Uh, children to to explore the world and really be little scientists. I think she even uses a similar kind of term in, mm-hmm. in her in her writings. Uh, so, I was, do you have, do you, do you see any of that, or is that just no? I, de- I definitely think so, and I, I don't think he's necessarily making those connections. But I think his broader sort of vision or goal really relates well to that. This idea of um, really putting like humans and you know children, adults in this broader context of like a world that we're a part of, that we're not just sort of um, in control of everything, that we can be less, you know, less exploitative, like like he was saying, and just more exploratory, seeing ourselves as part of this broader sort of relational framework. And so I think, yeah, like um, in terms of the Montessori approach, I really do feel like that's sort of uh, and maybe an application, another application of this idea. So he's not necessarily speaking about it in those terms, but I think the um, the consequences and his sort of goals. Mm-hmm. really relate well the idea of, mm-hmm. of, of having the child sort of not just be instrumental towards the adult but have mm-hmm. their own life as sure. well mm-hmm. and their own goals within within being a child mm-hmm. you know, the goal of the child as Montessori puts it is to become the adult mm-hmm. uh, but that's still that's within their life structure at that point right and that's what they're focused on right exactly yeah and I think it, in a lot of ways it really helps us to sort of give more I, I I think understand like childhood more broadly in the sense that children know more than we might think that they mm-hmm. do and have more capacities and skills than than we see if we think of them you know as this sort of childish playful um, in this sort of childish playful way so so Stephen you told us uh, about the the history of sports studies it was a bit gloomy in some ways uh, so I, I was hoping maybe we could we could focus more on on the positive side on the on the side of hope here and, and what uh, what sort of what what things might be developing that might be more positive about the study of sport whether it's within the confines of sports studies per se but or maybe just within the academy in general sure that's a difficult question given that the past 
35 years in higher education has seen a incredibly long and powerful assault on the liberal arts and I don't see much hope sorry that <laughs> that, that that is going to uh, uh, can dissipate any time in the near future so sports studies scholars in particular uh, have to be in the academy very very strategic about where they locate themselves and and that's difficult very much so uh, at my college, I think the best place for our, our major, our program to be would be in the School of Communications because it's the only place where there's this willingness to consider uh, both the liberal arts and pre-professional studies uh, as having legitimacy. Our, our, our humanities and sciences uh, faculty look at sports studies much the way it's looked at in many universities and that is it's the toy department of life uh, it doesn't have any significance and this is astounding to me given that there's a 60-year body of knowledge that's been produced uh, but but that's the way it it has been and and continues at most colleges uh, and I don't think sports studies is is uh, helped by being allied completely and totally with pre-professional programs like uh, schools of business, uh, which is where most sport management programs have gone. And I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to be allied with schools of uh, allied health uh, because uh, the, the liberal arts don't have the same kind of uh, cachet that the natural sciences do. Uh, even out there in the for-profit world. Uh, so the, e either schools of communication, which some universities don't have or some liberal arts colleges don't have, or really hopefully uh, a, a workable way in which interdisciplinary studies can be organized with the support of administration. Uh, because without that support, you're, you're, you're just going to be you know, five people in a room six times a year talking about how do we get this class promoted and how do we get that cla class promoted and how do kids see that, they, that there's actually a minor that, that can be done or, or in, at my college, a major. Uh, I think the, the, the biggest uh, challenge <clears throat> is to be able to convince uh, the people who control the purse strings that Classes that always fill up, it doesn't matter what department they're offered in, they, they always max out with students, uh, that they should be valued for that. And, and generating uh, FTEs is, is really matters in colleges today. So just because it has sport in, in it does not mean that it can't be productive uh, in helping a kid uh, make decisions about where their careers are going to go. And well, you know, you, you speak of, of the assault on, on liberal arts uh, that is probably as old as li the liberal arts, <laughs> right? <Yes. laughs> um, and one of the things that, that, that I'm hopeful about sports studies, uh, generically, not necessarily as a, as a minor at a sure. college, but the study of sport is a possible bulwark against that attack as a way, because I see sport as, uh, we, we were talking about this earlier today, as a kind of integrative uh, field or integrative activity that brings so much of the liberal arts together. Uh, you know, just like we saw today, law, classics, religion, uh, uh, history, philosophy, sociology, all the different disciplines seem to come to bear in this 
this human activity. And so it seems like in some ways a perfect avenue for engaging the liberal arts in, in a way that maybe isn't directly calling it liberal arts that has some it has this, this uh, cachet for bringing students in, that the students are interested yes. in it in a way that they might not be interested in the liberal arts if sold that way or presented that way. And so the students are interested, and, and then there's, there are definable career paths, which is something that some people are going to be interested in, whereas philosophy, what are you going to do with a philosophy major? My standard response is anything you want, right? right? Which is another way of saying nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so I, I see, uh, so I, I guess my question to you is, is, do you see that as a possibility of using the popularity of sport as a way of convincing administration to and, and other faculty to uh, sort of slip back into the liberal arts. I do see that as a possibility, but it's going to require the cooperation of uh, the the world of mediated sport out there. Mm. So the fact that ESPN's outside the lines actually has grown some legs in the past few years, and while it it claims to be in powerfully uh, uh, important, it continues to reify most of the, you know, the, the belief systems that are out there. But every once in a while, it, it does some important stuff. Uh, uh, Brian Gubbel's Real Sports, you know, every cable network seems to have this kind of a show now that brings the discussion to, in, into the homes of, of regular folks. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Even something as, as horrifying as Friday Night Tykes on Spike Network, looking at, you know, youth football, or, or what was the one this year, Bad Coaches. I mean, it's <laughs> terrible television, uh, but not if it actually gets people invested in the discussions that are really, really important, as opposed to, okay, we're going to have a football team that's going to generate this amount of dollars, and the university is going to be all wonderful, when the research shows that that doesn't happen, right. uh, except at maybe two or three colleges in the country. Uh, but, hey, you know, I teach a course called Youth Sport in America, and it essentially is my attempt to, behind the... Uh, be, behind the cloak of, uh, of an academic class, uh, get my students ready for parenthood. And so uh, while they're taking this class as 18, 19-year-olds, they consider most of uh, what I talk about as, uh, you know, Mosher, you're full of, you can fill in the blank. Uh, <laughs> but then one of the great rewards of, I'm sure, anybody who teaches in the liberal arts is, you know, 15 years later, I've been in this field a long time, I get an email from out of the blue, and this happens two or three times a year. Dear Dr. Mosher, you don't remember me, but I took this class, Youth Sport in America, and i got to tell you, I thought you were completely full of you-know-what. But I just want to let you know, my 13-year-old daughter just came home from volleyball practice, and she told me this story. So we went down to the school, and we had a meeting with, and I just wanted to let you know that I should have paid more uh, attention <laughs> 18 years ago, because you, you were right. Uh, and that, that's the ultimate that's vindication, is yeah. that, <laughs> that the, the liberal arts uh, eventually come to uh, that... that uh, you come to the point where you appreciate the liberal arts, usually on your deathbed. <laughs> did I live a good life or did I not live a good life? Right. All the rest of the way, it's, it's out there in the margins. But, yeah, if we can bring that actually to practical, everyday, lived lives uh, and, and not hide behind, you know, academic lingo so much, uh, 
we'll be better off. And I think that the administrators will see that and uh, perhaps even support it. Well, I, always, I yeah. always have a couple students in my sports ethics class that have no interest in sport, per se. Uh, they're taking it, well, it's a requirement, they need some ethics class, or they, their boyfriend or whatever mm -hmm. is, is someone who's into sport and they need to figure yeah. it out, something like that, right? It, and so there's always a couple of them, and, and, and they're always in some ways the most interesting students to have because they oh. have uh, an outsider's perspective, and they really, but then they also, uh, so they, they help us understand what we're doing better. Absolutely. But then in terms of what you're, you were saying, it, there's also a sense of which then they begin to see that this isn't just, you know, who got, who got the most points and who did, that there is something deep and profound going on in, in, this, in these activities and in thinking about it and enjoying the activities. It's very much a shared community experience that we have too little of in our fragmented society. Mm -hmm. from, my, from my experience, the best students are the ones who know nothing about sport because they don't come in with their fanboy or their fangirl, you know, ideologies and preconceptions. Then, you know, after, those are the students who are really difficult to deal with because... Most everything that research says stands in opposition to what they believe, and it's a struggle for us in the classroom, but it's always great when I have uh, at least a third of the class is female as opposed to you know one, one female standing there with 19 guys, uh, and it's even better when some of the guys and, and the females know nothing about sport mm -hmm. because they can look at this phenomenon with, with, through a different lens, and it's very, very helpful. So, Cynthia, you discussed uh, how get, maybe getting a better grip on, a better understanding of the, of the origin or the essence of, of sport uh, could help guide the study of sport and give us a, some sense of, of maybe a, a better way of thinking about it. Uh, and you, you talked a lot about how it's, how it's a kind of ritualization. So could you say more about that, about in what sense is it a ritualization and what that might mean and how that, how that might get us to understand sport better? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, by ritualization I meant not like repetitive actions, like you might have a ritual before a game or anything, but I used it from a lot of ritual studies in anthropology in which um, it's uh, understood that ritual is symbolic. So I, I was using some important works that hadn't really considered sport in the way I did and to put them together to say um, sport is the ritual sacrifice of physical energy. That came from classicist David Sansone's book. Um, and he says that uh, sport is, is innate to us because it, the energy invested in um, Paleolithic hunting went on for so long and was so intense that um, when hunting was no longer necessary to communities because they're stratified and bigger and so on, that humans still had this biocultural thing about them that they needed to give up that energy but it's symbolic and that to do that they started sporting and using a lot of the symbols motifs the expenditure of energy that had been used in hunting in sport then so that's and now and also one of the uh the issues that you pushed on in your talk was the purported aspirational or idealizational role of sport, um, mm -hmm. the idea of it being uh, a tool for peace, a tool for building community, a tool for 
uh, coming together and, and those kinds of, of things that it often gets gets pushed at. So um, I guess probably my, my question, I, I wanted to ask in the Q&A, but I figured I'd come, we'd have this space to ask it, is, uh, is, is there no aspirational role then in sport, or is it just that we've overblown it uh, in, in the contemporary marketing of, of yeah. sport? Yeah. So is it, is it that there's no space for it, or is it that, uh, that, that, that it's just overblown? Yeah. My idea is that we modern humans sense and understand there's something so crucial and important about sport. And it's if we agree with my hypothesis, it's because it's something that for this long period of human activity we were involved in. So because we understand it um, innately as something really important, we moderns have mistakenly attached it to all of these other things like morals, well, that's sort of right because the best hunters were sleeping the night before and really caring about the hunt and so on, morals, leadership, peace. That's, I think that's an artificial kind of selected, invented thing that we're attaching to, to sport. And mm -hmm. I then, um, in my work, was using other critiques about sincerity in the philosophical sense um, to, to critique how we... Uh, think sport is peace, but it's really um, not not something that comes with sport. That instead, in sport, you stay in your ritual boundaries, and you're not going to merge them or, or blend them. But the best you can do is be next to another person. Mm -hmm. So you might have a feel-good um, essence about that or sense, but we're mistaking it for all these other grandiose ideas or so. I argue. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, and I could definitely see that in terms of looking at sport as necessarily bringing bringing that about mm -hmm. uh, as being wrong, because there's plenty of counterexamples to to that sport being used uh, uh, as a tool of oppression, as yeah. a tool of of uh, separation. Uh, but I also do see some of these aspirational examples of sport as helping break down some barriers and not achieving world peace, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, of helping move us one step closer, bringing people together, allowing them to see themselves uh, differently. So mm -hmm. as you say, you kind of bring, it, you bring us to the boundaries. We don't necessarily mm -hmm. cross over. But if we start to see each other across that boundary, then maybe that gives us the space to begin to cross over. So you use mm -hmm. Israelis and Palestinians or the, the Catholics and Protestants in, in, in Ireland or uh, Jackie Robinson uh, in the U.S. and uh, um, Steve, your, your wife brought up Sandy Koufax, yeah. right? And these different points in, in sport that, that do suggest some aspirational role. Maybe mm -hmm. that's not its origin mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a necessary component to it, but that it, it, has, it does have some of that role, I, mm -hmm. I think. Right. I want to at least suggest that it, has, it can be, it can have that, but we have to also be careful with it because we can mm -hmm. overdo it and then it just becomes schlock and, and saccharine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, schlock and saccharine. Yeah. But what I, say, <laughs> what I say is that sport can do those things. 
but so can other things Absolutely. when people are next to each other, Absolutely. whatever it is. Go, a bunch of people who don't know each other go on a trip, or they mm -hmm. make art, or they build a well. Absolutely. Um, but but we specifically have these initiatives now, policies and funding for mm -hmm. for sport as helping with development and peace and so on. And I think that like I've been trying to look through UN documents and so on, and even those um, writers and um, the documents themselves admit we don't have empirical evidence on this we don't but we sense that this is about these things it's a nice we story wanna, that we keep yeah. telling ourselves yeah. over and over and over again yeah. and for me I don't have any problem with just being satisfied with the fact that everybody together is having a real good time doing something mm -hmm. that occasionally rises mm -hmm. to being beautiful right. and, mm -hmm. and just celebrating that. What, mm -hmm. what the heck is wrong with that? Going mm -hmm. to a good ball game, playing in a good ball game, shooting the arrow perfectly mm -hmm. once every 72 mm -hmm. times, that, that's fabulous stuff. Yeah. And, and, and it, it helps us connect with our basic, basic humanness in, in a way that happens more often than in other activities where we try to achieve that because it's a, it's a lot easier to do to get good at sport than it is to get good at at music or mm -hmm. art or, or or those other activities and the spectator yeah. component mm -hmm. is, is so much broader i mean yes. yeah people will go to the ballet will go to the opera but sure. not at the same rate not at the same level and it's yeah. not as accessible uh, to 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 audiences the way sport can be and they can they can begin to enjoy this moment, this beautiful moment together, and realize, well, you know, you're black, I'm white, you're Jewish, uh, you know, you're Catholic, and but we're both enjoying this thing and recognizing that there's a shared goal is one. Now it's not gonna, it's not gonna suddenly, you know, peace break out right. and everyone love each other, but it's it's one brick in the wall that's yeah, coming right. down, and and I think that that's. That's, it's okay to recognize that and recognize that it doesn't necessarily have to have that role to be good either. That's right. right. That's, that's what these ritual scholars say, that it's like a dance mm. and that and you're not going to change religions or whatever through it. But but I think what you're saying that it does bring people together in some ways is like speaks to like the importance of it as not just some other frivolous thing or just one other cultural form, but something mm. really mm. serious, which just, makes our venture in understanding it and it, it could be just as simple as a, a little important. gesture with two joggers meeting mm -hmm. in, uh, on the street hey how you doing they're sharing this activity nothing would be more wonderful from my perspective living where i live where the ice is 17 feet thick most of the year <laughs> both runners at the same time approaching a puddle from the opposite directions and both having the impulse to jump in it you know because <laughs> that's what you do with puddles when you're out jogging yeah. in in late march mm -hmm. in the northeast there's a puddle let's stomp on it yeah. well and then there's uh you know when you showed up today and you had a wonderful tie on <laughs> and it's a boston red sox tie i saw that and immediately there's a connection that's right. there. so that and there so that can be bad too in the sense of if, if we tribalize that then, yeah. then that can be problematic but it's also a nice moment of, of a sharing of a kind of community and shared and shared values as well let, let me let me jump in real quick because there was a question i wanted to ask you guys at, at the at the at, at the end of the thing and I, again i waited until we got here <laughs> but it was it was almost as if my question started and it it got more complicated as each one now goes back and, <laughs> and it has to do with with the hunting aspect of it like the hunting ritual and i was thinking back to my own um 
I've had a yearly tradition with my with my father. He comes up when we go pheasant hunting, and and I'm thinking, to what extent is this in my is this play? Is this work? And the concept of, or is it a ritual? And there's so many ritual aspects to to the to the hunting experience that I have, that that I've had growing up, and that I have with my with my with my parents. Now, if it was straight out feeding myself, it becomes a, a matter of more work. And I'm thinking then ancient, and you're talking about the hunting. Ritual and to what extent did, was this seen as work or was it seen as play or does the ritual aspect combine those two elements and would that would that ritual aspect be interesting how that would affect your paper and then the concept of the classes from sports management to sports studies and this idea that when it's connected to work that's where it's it's seen as more legitimate and what's connected to play it's not and again what role does that ritual play in in that. I think that's a question. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was something that I kind of wanted to say, put in the conversation, is that I think it's, I don't know if it's important, but it's just interesting that we do have the dichotomy to begin with, right? So, like, if we're talking about sport in this sense of, like, being aspirational, it is interesting that, like, you know, this activity that can be so, like, conceived as innocent, right? That that might be one of the reasons why it is so appealing and why it is a way... Uh, an arena where people can like come together where there are other activities or arenas where we just absolutely can't mix right and so I think that's that's something at least where I would sort of problematize what I'm talking about is that you know there might be some utility to maintaining the distinction that there may be some things that if we think of you know sport and play as sort of innocent even though we know that they're not and we've you know there's lots of scholarship to say otherwise but that just this conception of that may facilitate certain things that we're also invested in and that um, serve ends that we you know, might not be so, that we would like to see, see happen. So I think, um, you know, sort of like I said in the, in the panel discussion earlier, just that I don't know if I would want to dissolve the distinction completely simply because I feel like there are aspects of both of them as separate that we definitely capitalize on and utilize um, and benefit from. So, mm. let's get back to tribalism. <laughs> okay, <Yeah. laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with tribalism, even at at its most intense, as long as the people who are engaged in the tribalism know that it's tribalism. <laughs> and so, the phrase I use for podcasts and telephone uh, radio interviews. Uh, is that I say this is soap opera for men, mm-hmm. and and in soap operas or in any form of melodrama, you take you know the emotions of fear and pity and turn them into irrational fear and self pity. So in two thousand and three, even though you're in Rockford, Illinois, and I'm in I'm in upstate New York, we both had the same I was horror. In Phoenix at the time. Oh, okay, you're in <laughs> Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix. Okay, so it was more like daytime for you. It was midnight for you. But when Aaron Burn Boone hit this home run, our worlds just collapsed. You didn't man. say the name of Aaron <laughs> Boone. Boone. Uh, all right, yeah, 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 it's your it's your podcast. Yeah. But but the the whole thing just went out of us Mm -hmm. and yet at the same time I'm thinking I went into class the next day I said do you know how brave it is to be a knuckleball pitcher in that moment and throw that ball out into destiny like Tim Wakefield did think about how beautiful a moment that was for him for him now the tribalism part of course came to its rightful conclusion 12 <laughs> months later when, when the Red Sox literally came back from the dead mm-hmm. you know 
And I'm teaching in upstate New York, so I've got you know 30 kids in a 40-person class, and they they are they are ripping me to shreds. Oh, die, Mosier, die! You know, <laughs> you're going down, you're going down, and 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 it was all fun. Yeah. It was all games. But I can tell you this, I, I didn't sleep that night. Mm-mm. I didn't sleep the night before. Our teaching was terrible during mm-hmm. those, that, that, that series. I canceled a few classes. You canceled <laughs> a few classes. And, and I've never done this in, in my entire life as a teacher, but I came in the next morning and I had a quiz, a true-false quiz for my students, and I told them to take it. First question was, the Boston Red Sox won the AL championship. And there was no false chance. It was just true. <laughs> there were four questions like that. And I said, it's okay. You can circle it. I'm giving you an A, 100. And Yankee fans are going, awesome. <laughs> but they did it. And, and I said, maybe you need some music to be able to get through this moment. So I put on uh, Sweet Caroline yeah. for them. <laughs> and, yeah, he's a Cardinal fan. Uh, well, I'm just but, staying quiet. But... Yeah. but, but, but but it's all fun. Yeah. It's all games. It's it's all wonderful. Yeah. And can that build world peace or, or tear down barriers? Well, maybe it can. Yeah. If if but but if we take it too seriously and yeah. actually have agendas that you know we we're going to fly these soccer teams over there and it's going to solve the border war. Yeah. So that that's that's yeah. insanity. Yeah. That's not going to do it. Well, you know, your discussion ties together a lot, I think, because, you know, the play, in a way, is ritualizing some of these other emotions and these Mm -hmm. conflicts in a way that can uh, denature them or, you know, in in a way of of maybe taking some of the claws out of it. Yeah. Uh, You know, so sometimes uh, people talk about sport hate, you know, and so, you know, we hate each other, but it's, it's sport hate, which is a way of saying... We don't really hate each other. We're playing at hating each other, yeah. or we're ritualizing this us versus you. But it's not. It's 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 not. It's not real, yeah. uh, and so we're able to to put it into that space. And I think that that makes it safer and allows us to to deal with it in, in the same way that maybe uh, you know having you know violence contained in a ring in a boxing ring is is better than just fighting on the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for for being part of the, the sports study symposium today and. I look forward to uh, uh, some conviviality uh, a little bit later after this. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now we're uh, sitting with the the second panel uh, from today's sports study uh, symposium. Uh, This was focused more on uh, actual interdisciplinary studies. So uh, we had uh, philosophy of law, we had classics, we had theology, and so we'll continue that discussion here. So uh, Dr. Aaron Harper Uh, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at West Liberty University in Wheeling, West Virginia, and Dr. Stephanie Quinn, uh, Associate Professor of Classic Studies here at Rockford University, and Zach Smith, a graduate student in sports studies at the the United States Sports uh, Academy, and that's in Alabama, right? Yeah. Uh, And so now, Aaron, uh, going in order of the talks this afternoon, uh, you talked about Interpretivism, so certain theories of understanding sport, uh, one being interpretivism and, and some of the issues with that, uh, and, and, and then proposing legal realism as a possible alternative way of understanding uh, sport. Uh, so could you say a little bit about why legal realism is a, is a better way to explain sport? 
So uh, I think the attempt to, to use legal theories uh, to understand sport makes sense because each of them seem to be rule-based systems that focus on adjudication and that sort of thing. Uh, and one of the, the virtues of these theories should be that they give us some advice right, to a coach, an umpire, a referee, a commissioner, or somebody like that. It should say something about how they ought to look at these cases. And uh, essentially my concern is that while I like that idea, I, I think it doesn't always explain what actually is going on in sports. So, I mean, one of my basic suggestions is we have to look at sport as it's actually practiced if we're going to understand the subject matter rather than getting into conversations about what it might look like or what it could look like. Uh, so that's more or less why I want to look at it from this more this uh, legal realist perspective is to look at sport as a practice as it's done by players rather than approaching it from a theoretical uh, position that might tell us something about sport but not really get at what's going on in sport mm -hmm. now um, so one possible concern about about that approach might be and this may be falling to the conventional criticism of it is that it it becomes self-justifying uh, in terms of some of the activities and makes it hard to to critique it from from outside the practice. Um, so, do, do you, have you thought about that possible objection? What, what are what are your answers to that? Right, I think this is a, a serious concern because we don't want to say something like, "Well, this is the way it's done in sport." Stop right there. That's right. the end of the story. Uh, but That's I, the way our students deal with it. Right. Often. This is this is often the discussions we have in my philosophy of sport classes, and I'm sure in your mm -hmm. classes as well. This is the system. We're all trying to win. There's not really any other level of analysis. Um, so a couple of proposals I make in the paper, and these aren't fully developed yet, uh, I think we can look at this from a sort of theoretical pragmatist uh, perspective, that there are broader social ends, broad conception of, of fairness, and we might be able to say, uh, to these put some constraint on what we can do, right? that not just anything goes, that we should see sports like law and other sorts of disciplines in the service of larger ends. Uh, at the very least, I'd, I'd like to think that that could say something about sportsmanship. I mean, it, it, while I'm skeptical of some moral claims about sports, at the very least, I want to say something about what kinds of actions might be unsportsmanlike and where we draw the line. Mm -hmm. So that's one suggestion. I, I think another way we might look at it is thinking of the virtues of the people who are making these decisions, right? So if we look at who is who is sanctioning people in sport, right? We have umpires and referees, we have uh, coaches, commissioners, fans, other players, that sort of thing. And in some of these jobs, um, and to use the philosophical term, I think you need practical wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to in order to look at the facts of the case and make fair judgments about them. And I think sometimes making the fair judgment doesn't involve looking at the rule directly or it doesn't just involve appealing to a principle. I think there's something more than that. So is that the way in which it differs then from, from interpretivism? Because it, in a lot of ways it sounds like interpretivism. You're appealing to, there's the rules and the conventions, but you're also appealing to things that are a bit extra to that mm -hmm. and interpreting those rules and conventions in, in, in light of that, whether it's the pursuit of excellence or integrity of the game or something like that. So Right. So part of my disagreement is I, I think there are plenty of cases where whatever decision is made by these various agents 
uh, it just can't be explained by the rules or the principles or an appeal to integrity or a specific excellence of the sport. There's something going on, political ratings. I mean, <laughs> all of these decisions are made in a variety of ways. Uh, that if you just rule out these in, in law, you would call them non-legal or extra-legal considerations. I think you have something similar in, in, in sport, right? When somebody is making an appeal, um, we like to think that they're only appealing to, say, the rules of the game. But in practice, I don't think that's actually what happens. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're missing something if we if we don't try to incorporate those. Admittedly, um, then that that means other considerations start to intrude on sport. Sport no longer is is quite the isolated, autonomous venture that we would like it to be. Uh, but maybe it's just not. And maybe it never was. Yeah, and maybe it never was. Which takes me to Stephanie. Uh, <laughs> now you uh, you uh, disabused us of many. Uh, I think, uh, false or misconceptions about uh, sport in the ancient world. Uh, and so I, I, what I, what I want to ask you then is, is which one do you think is the most important misconception that, that we have that we need to, to, to jettison? I'm glad I disabused you, so thank you. Thanks, thank you <laughs> it's better than abusing me. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, the most important misconception is that uh, the difference between the Greeks and Romans was radically good, pure, noble, eternal, timeless on the Greek side and corrupt, base, mob-based, uh, and other such adjectives on the Roman side. Uh, that kind of comparison, besides uh, being historically nonsensible, these are human beings, they're not all good or all bad, they're the normal societies in historical moments, uh, but that distinction has uh, played poorly for us, I think, in the West, in, especially through influences in, in Northern Europe, where the goodness, purity, eternal uh, truthiness of, of uh, Greek culture was used by um, German idealists, and here I'm reporting things I've read, I'm not a student of, of German philosophy, uh, was used to create a, an ideology of nation building in Northern Europe and an ideology of the exceptionalism of the German people. So with a, the folk uh, mm -hmm. people, so with a, a marvelous twist of uh, a, a, a logical ingenuity, this universalizing concept came to be applied particularly to the, to the burgeoning German state in the 19th century, which then uh, went on to have an unglorious future in uh, the 20th century. So to return us, uh, uh, peeling away European ideology, Pe peeling away, and, and we'll hear about this in a few minutes, Christian ideology of, of interpretation, especially of Roman sport, simply helps us get back to um, the questions of what the Romans thought they were doing, not what we thought they were doing, but what they thought they were doing, what the Greeks thought they were doing. And then we can make judgments about what we think we want to copy and not copy. Mm -hmm. uh, not all of it was good. Not all of it was uh, pleasant. Um, some of it was extraordinary. But um, it, there is such a thing as academic and historical integrity uh, in, a, in a set of cultures that's so old, the um, culture that Homer... Um, uh, describes in the Iliad and the Odyssey really reflects back to the late Bronze Age, so we're going back 3,000 years. It's not at all surprising that there would be layers of interpretation through all of that period. And um, 
our task as contemporary classicists and archaeologists is at least to try not to add more layers, more crust <laughs> onto the interpretations, but to do our best to um, peel them away. Now, um, the, some of that misconception of the, the way the Europeans looked at this difference between uh, the Romans and, and the Greeks, um, did, did the Romans have a conception as well about the difference between them themselves and, and what they were doing in terms of sport and what the Greeks viewed uh, themselves as doing as well. Yes, uh, the Romans' relationship with the Greeks was complex. When the Romans first met the Greeks, I believe, but I'm, I'm fearful I may be wrong, I think it was uh, three or two hundreds, probably the two hundreds BCE before the Common Era, they did not like what they met. Mm -hmm. uh, philosophers came to Rome, Greek philosophers, Athenian philosophers, argued one day on uh, the positive uh, side of an argument, came back the next day, argued the opposite side, and the elder Romans kicked him out of Rome. Yeah, well, the it Greeks was, didn't like that they either, didn't like, right? <laughs> they didn't like it either, yeah. But this was going to corrupt <laughs> Roman values. So they, they definitely had a mixed um, uh, relationship. On the other hand, uh, Roman history developed later than Greek history. And so when um, when Rome, in its quite successful uh, territorial expansion met up with the Hellenistic world, not the classical world of Athens, but met up with the Hellenistic world after Alexander the Great. They're smart enough to know that those folks talked better, wrote better, had a history, had a, a kind of literature that the Romans didn't have. So they were um, fully aware of a certain kind of cultural inferiority. Mm -hmm. It took a while for them to uh, develop the Latin language into a tool that could uh, be a world-class um, level, but they did. And as I said this afternoon, for all the correct attribution of Rome, a great deal of copying of Greek culture, they were nonetheless the only culture in the ancient Mediterranean that succeeded in adopting Greek culture. Now in terms of sport in, in, in particular, uh, the Romans, like many other uh, ancient peoples, thought that running around naked was absurd. <laughs> A Greek nudity in sport. They thought it was unmanly, uh, undignified, ignoble. Um, on the other hand, uh, when the Roman generals, this is after the empire is secure, when the Roman generals went to Athens, they were diplomatic and smart enough to realize that this was a very viable institution, and so they supported it. Mm -hmm. And later on, as the, um, as the amalgamation of Eastern influences, Greek influences, Roman influences, really began to meld through this highly integrated cultural system of the Roman Empire, um, there were Athenian games in Rome, and there were Roman games through the, uh, through the Eastern Mediterranean. But yeah, that, I didn't know that uh, about about that. I mean, mm -hmm. this is not it's not my area yeah. by any stretch, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, I didn't realize that that there was that much of a distinction between the kind of games uh, that they at first. Yeah. Now and, there there was there were many similarities, mm -hmm. uh, but they really are different cultures. The, what they might have had most in common was uh, horse racing, chariot okay. racing. Uh, you know, one of the things that came up in the dis in the discussion period after your talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, questions about about fairness um, mm -hmm. and uh, also um, I, I, the, and then this starts to connect to, to some of what Zach was talking about in terms of, of religion um, is, uh, is 
one of the, and I, I think it might even be Sam, Sam, I can't say his name, Sam, Samson, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Cynthia's talk earlier, where she used him, I think he even put forward this partly as a thesis, that part of the development of democracy was rooted in in these in these contests and the the equality and fairness such as it was at that time uh, as being sort of religiously mandated that the race the person who was going to be honored with carrying the torch uh, or being honored by the god for having won well we better make sure that this contest is fair that it's balanced in some way that um, that we know that the that we know who we know who really won the race because this is the person who's going to be honored by the gods, so we better make sure that we do this right. Mm-hmm. And that that sort of begins this rooting idea of, well, then the poor person, the rich person can both enter this contest, and if the poor person wins, they win, they're honored by God. That, so you start to get this sort of um, uh, procedural justice or procedural fairness idea. So uh, how much do you, do you see of that within Greek, within the Roman cultures, within the games, the interplay with that between democracy and, the, and mm-hmm. other politics? Huge question. So yeah. we'll see if I have, have You get two minutes. No. How, how <laughs> sense I can 30 seconds. In, in a short time. First, um, Athens and other city-states were democracies. Rome was a republic, mm-hmm. an oligarchic republic. And uh, the leaders lived in a world of voting and rights and uh, before the law, but they did not extend that sense of democracy to the whole. So right. that's a significant difference. Um, it, I think it's accurate from what I've read that uh, at the uh, Panhellenic Games, of which there were four, Olympics were just one, uh, there was a great deal of attention to the judging of the games. So there's uh, very clear evidence that there were a lot of judges and uh, they were carefully trained over months before they would participate. So, yes, as uh, respect to the gods, after all, this is, the, this is a festival, a ritual for Zeus, and we don't want to honor someone who's going to dishonor that ritual uh, because part of our obligation is to make sure of right relationships between humans and gods. The connection between sport and uh, democracy, as I mentioned this afternoon, is controversial. It's not, it not as right. contra- unclear, I think, may even be uh, fairer. I don't find it, from what I've read, to be as clear as your reporting uh, was said. Uh, other contributions to the development of democracy have to do with uh, changes in the military structure. Um, but uh, a further grounding that I think might be more helpful is, and I didn't talk about this at all this afternoon, it gets more complicated, but there's a concept in the Greek world of the agon, A-G-O-N, of the contest. Uh, Our word in English is something that's agonistic. Uh, uh, What I've read really very interestingly about that is that 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 concept not only relates to uh, sport, obviously, certainly also to rhetoric, and in one person's, I can't remember the name, I apologize, uh, in one person's um, hypothesis, it's a, co- a Greek concept that precedes even sport or rhetoric, and that it postulates a common um, community in which excellence can be adjudicated. Really interesting idea to yeah. me. Uh, in that light, uh, deciding who's best is uh, front and center, or uh, whether it's an argument or a uh, sprint. The um, uh, opportunity to be best if you weren't an aristocrat changed over time. Mm-hmm. As, as uh, Greece colonized, 
went Greek um, uh, the Greeks left the the Aegean area and got as far as Spain and very early Spain Sicily northern Africa uh, and then later on in the Empire when it became more Hellenistic more and more people who were not Greeks were um, claiming uh, access the Olympic Games were it, were closed just to Greek free, free males but that began to bend so maybe you could call that democratic. Uh, that doesn't mean they could vote. Right, yeah. But it, it starts to bring in notions of uh, more equality, more pluralistic sort of society. Not quite, not quite equal, but more equal, well, <laughs> maybe, uh, than you equality were. Equality is not... Yeah. That's our, their their notion of equality is different yeah. from ours. Their yeah. notion of equality was equality before the law, mm -hmm. and if you were a citizen, and equality of opportunity to speak in the Agora, if you were a citizen. They would not have thought that we were all equal. Right. There's not yeah. a sense of natural, natural right. But yeah. exposure but, and even, to other but even, people... But even in that sense of, of equality, of, of, of before the law, but at least maybe even just before this contest, so maybe not by in the city-state, but at least within that context. It becomes it? possible. And yeah. the, the trajectory of uh, Athenian democracy from uh, Solon down to past Pericles was of a, a broadening base mm -hmm. within Athens, within the world of the Greeks, and more and more, and more tightly closed doors to mm. anybody outside. Mm. Uh, okay, well then that's, I don't have a good transition here, so we'll just transition <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> to, uh, to the, the uh, theology and sport or theology of sport, and maybe that's where I'll put, put the question, which is it that you're looking to, uh, uh, to, to really energize a theology of sport or just theology and sport where there'd be maybe an intersection of, of the disciplines? Both and. Okay. <laughs> Can I give a non-answer? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I, I do think it's both. I think, I think in the talk I gave, I was trying to sort of uh, articulate that over the course of, in this particular case, I was talking about uh, Christian history um, we have various writings and reflections um, on sport from, from this Christian perspective that formulate theologies of sport. Um, that said, you know, if we want to look at it more broadly, um, and as we sort of were talking about interdisciplinarity today, in some ways maybe theology and sport, or as uh, Cindy pointed out, maybe really religion and sport are the frames we need to be talking about. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I, I think that I'm um, on board with that. Yeah, yeah, because there's there's that question of, of what do we mean by theology, and that's, I think, right. Cynthia brought up that question, do you mean just Christian uh, mm -hmm. theology? But another way to think about it is theology as, as more akin to, I, I think you used the term divinity studies, uh, versus religious studies, which might be looking more comparatively, more historically, sociologically at various aspects of the of of, of religion, um, which is going to be and maybe broader than uh, even what we normally think about uh, of religion. Um, and so I don't really have a question in that because <laughs> uh, it sounds like you you're, you're on board with. I, with, yeah, I, with I agree. Um, now, one uh, point that uh, you discussed, and and maybe it's not quite your own view, but uh, I thought it was an interesting uh, claim about the notion of, of, uh, of sport as, as autotelic 
uh, and driving uh, its own its own meaning, uh, and that these other sort of endeavors, whether it's uh, professionalization, commercialization of sport, or other uses of sport, undermine it, make it instrumental. Uh, that sounds. What I thought was interesting about that was just how almost verbatim that sounds like your standard sort of secular. Uh, critique within within the academy of, of sport, whether you know typically coming from critical or, or leftist sort of or perspectives. Uh, so uh, I thought that was interesting as, as a parallel that they seem to be making the same critique. I don't know if you've if you've thought about that at all. What you think about that now that I've said that? Yeah, um, that uh, that particular commentator on sport, Lincoln Harvey. Yes. Um, that's, I couldn't remember his name. So <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the thesis of his book. Okay, is, is sort of deals with that. Um, I, I'm sympathetic. I don't know that I 100 percent agree. Um, yeah, I do think in many ways, though, if if we look at sport as purely autotelic, right? If if we participate in it and we do so purely for for its own sake, for the joy. In participation, um, it, the ends are in itself, sort of. I think. I think if that is what we value in sport, if that is is the sporting ideal, then I think it is logical, right, to sort of view anything that instrumentalizes sport. We, we need to be suspicious of it because it's it's sort of abusing the the telos of sport, which is the, the ends are in itself, right. Mm-hmm. So the moment the telos is rooted elsewhere. Um, that sport is sullied. Mm-hmm. It's like impure now. Which kind of takes us full circle back to interpretivism and legal realism because in a sense maybe what, what you're saying is there really isn't a telos here. Uh, that, that there might be in certain cases but there isn't a broad shared universal telos. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth but that, uh, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I think agree. more or less, I mean that's, that's been the, the challenge from the, the conventionalist or the traditionalist or whatever label you want to put on that sort of more relativist tradition which has been very critical of these other views of sport to say you're <clears> acting <throat> as if there's some, there's some telos, there's some essence, there's some, ideal. there's some ideal form of excellence. And, and I guess I'm sort of on board with that critique, only I don't want to stop it there, right? Just because, I'm, just because we might be skeptical of this essence of sport shouldn't necessarily lead us to only saying sport is just what it is. But I think that part of the critique is it's important to, to latch on to at least part of that. Finding some balance there. Yeah. I think you were mentioned. I remember we mentioned baseball in the in the in the in the question and answer session. And I think there's. A, I was thinking of a connection between all three. Was um, in my sports writer class, we were, we were having a discussion, um, and, and about those unwritten rules of baseball, and and how do you respond to if you're shown up? You mm-hmm. know, like say a a, a a batter hits a home run and shows up the pitcher. You're like, well, next time it's a, he says it's a pitcher's job to throw him next time because you don't do that, and I'm, you know, and I'm like, well, why is that? That's the written rule, and I'm thinking, and I, and I and I said to him, is he really that insecure that that he has to throw the ball at him because the guy hit a home run is and is that but he, but but that I think is connected to this idea that if we see this sport as something 
noble, and we, we refer to the fields as cathedrals, right? I mean, the, that kind of almost pastoral kind of quality to, to baseball. I wonder if, if we can look beyond that, then we can question that. But otherwise, if we're, maybe, I don't know if those unwritten rules are a way to kind of respond to when the game is not ideal, because in an ideal game, no one would ever show it. It's completely, you know, so the minute someone shows up, is it a way you have to balance it out? Is it some sort of mm-hmm. cosmic, I, I don't know, it just, mm-hmm. it just seemed to be there was something, because they didn't want to grasp that, this, that there was anything other than this was, it was manly, and it was the right thing to do, and it was connected to the, the, the tradition of the game, rather than it might come from a different place. And, and, and what does that mean? But I think there's, I was just thinking, Stephanie, of your ideas of, of, of even kind of demystifying the mm-hmm. kind of grandiose language that, that we connected to. But I don't know. Yeah. yeah. A... My response is, is just the, the proper response to a guy showing you up if, because he had, he had a home run is to strike him out next time. Yeah. Throw him. <laughs> well, strike I, him yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> strike or, him. Do a better job. Right. <laughs> but it does, I think, you know, as, as you're saying, I mean, there, there becomes this tension in trying to figure out how to evaluate the rules from uh, externally, uh, and if there is, which I think is the pull towards trying to find the telos, because if you can have a kind of telos or you have a kind of Mecatarian sort of practice that defines the telos for you, then you can have this way of evaluating whether it has integrity or not. Uh, but I think it's important too to push that that's not always the way it really is working, and not in the sense that it's falling short of the ideal, it's just it's just a different kind of thing that's going on there. I mean, I really think that, that the unwritten rules, especially in baseball, which obviously has the most of these bizarre unwritten, I mean, that seems to really be motivating, at least I see it as motivating all of these big philosophical questions that emerge because there's this tradition of sports are games and games are about rules and that's the end of the story. And unwritten rules clearly mess up the, the, yeah. the, 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 yeah, the yeah, analysis. They, yeah, they, yeah. So there's... So then what do we make of them? Do we just say, well, they're there, that's it? That doesn't seem right. So I think there's been various movements to try to work those in. Well, how can unwritten rules be a part of the sport if they're not written down? Like, who knows what they are and where do you find them? And and so I... Although that does push back to to the question of philosophy of law, because you do have a common law tradition, which Mm -hmm. in a way is like that. There are these set of unwritten rules that you apply to the legal situation uh, they, and, and interpret it, even though they're not mm-hmm. written down, and you're not in some in some cases, you really you don't state them until the case comes up, and you need to state them. And, and this is why I think we find so many parallels between umpires and referees and judges. And lots right. of people have written on this uh, in a variety of ways, and there seem to be plenty of examples where they're doing the same thing, and plenty of examples where they're doing something differently, and then people have different ideas of, well, here's what a good judge or umpire does. How much is uh, consistency valued? Like, the strike zone, strike, yeah. strike zone can mm-hmm. change, but if it's, if it's the same through nine innings, and it's the same, but it's... All right. and, and how much should we be... I mean, I think, as I look at it, I think part of the real d- discussion comes down to, should we be focusing on what judges and umpires ought to do, or should we just be focusing on what umpires and judges actually do, and can those come together at any point? And I guess I'm sort of skeptical that they go together as much as it would be nice if they went together. But. Yeah, I think there's got to be some balance there because you can't just do one or one or the other. Uh, and but how they come together, that's well, that's that's another question. So we'll we'll solve that over uh, over some some beer and scotch and sushi. Uh, so, unfortunately, the, the folks in the podcast world can't join us for that. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for being a part of, of the symposium today. Thank uh, you for hosting. Both thanks. Of you. Yes. 
This has been the Sports Ethics Show. You can find us at sportsethicist.com, Facebook, and Twitter, and you can email the show at sportsethicist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.